people have been very wise from day one, really. You just have to look at five minutes of television footage to realize that this is not a movement that is saying the price of bread has increased. This is a movement that's been saying you people who who got down from your debate, like you just put on some clothes, washed your hands of blood and promised to fix this country, you failed. And this is why we're in economic collapse. And in that way, it's very intersectional. It's very nationwide and it's very unique and it's very hopeful. Carmen Jaha. I am a wannabe scholar slash couch potato slash activist. Do you think time plays any role in the momentum and the aspirations of the average protester? Not in the sense that history takes time, but I mean the the moment that people went to the streets October 17, 18, and 19, that initial period. Do you sense that time plays a role in at least at least diminishing the momentum? We've experienced a series of counter-revolutions, and those of us that have the unlucky fortunes of studying protest movements and studying the Arab Spring, later dubbed as the Arab Winter, I mean, I've worked in Libya, Tunisia, I've covered Syria, uh, those of us that do this understand that we're experiencing uh, various episodes of counter-revolution. Part of it is oppressive police force, and part of it is co-optation of the protesters' demands and saying that, yeah, we can solve it, give us more trust. And part of it is a counter-narrative that says, you know, this revolution is is, is threatening the civil stability and is threatening the mythaqiyya, etc. I am extremely hopeful. I don't think that there's been any setbacks. I think that the ebb and flow of the street is a very normal uh, process of establishing the post-revolutionary phase. We're just getting to know each other, Roni. I mean, you know, after the civil war, uh, politicians in a very purposeful way destroyed all platforms of mobilization. There is no public school in Lebanon. There is no public university in Lebanon. There's no fucking public library in Lebanon. There's not a contemporary museum. There's not a unified history book. There is not a union and a worker syndicate. I mean, there's no platform where citizens from different classes can meet and can mobilize around common issues. So I don't think, I mean, I don't think, you know, realistically, people can't stand on the streets forever. I mean, you know, people are broke and it's cold in Beirut and the electricity cuts up and folks need to feed their kids. But I think now we're entering, if you're here, you would see the mobilization move from the street to a number of meetings in people's houses and in universities and schools and coffee shops and folks want to do unions and folks want to do elections and folks want to do women issues and feminist platforms and working on racism and going and singing in the banks and doing sit-ins in the rain and getting beat up and showing up at the police stations. The city is extremely vibrant and extremely hopeful. And I, I, I would urge you, you know, from a distance and people listening to not think that there's been any setbacks. It's just phases of an ongoing protest because we don't have one dictator. I know you know this. It's super cliche. We don't have one guy that we're trying to bring down. And we're not a unified front of opposition that's going to be like, okay, if this guy leaves, we're ready to take over. We're a nation that's reconciling after 30 years where we've been told you should hate each other and fear each other. It's going to take us time, but there's not been any setbacks. The mood is very hopeful and very productive. And uh, I think people know that they're in it for the long haul. So, you know, I think we've done in... Uh, three months, uh, more uh, achievements than they've been able to destroy in 30 years. You know, I like your incessant positivity, and I'm just going to clarify a few points. I meant in the sense that the initial uh, the initial outburst of demands, which I mean in the sense of kill yani kill 
and also that the calls for a regime change, at least in, in the early inception of this moment. And uh, I, I'm going to just push a little bit on what you said in that I don't think Hassan Dieb is a positive step in the process, but you tell me if that's incorrect. And in other words, that the structural changes that have happened in the last three and a half, four months don't seem to line up with the initial demands of the protester. Not, not saying that the protesters are failing, not saying that the moment will not yield to change. What I just meant in the, the hope for an improved economy, I know will take long, long time, but the economy continues to collapse. Uh, the numbers of protesters have diminished. The mobilization has diminished quite rapidly. And I think violence also took some people away, at least from the initial, the initial few weeks. Um, and also the fact that uh, the chants against Aoun and Birri and, and, and Nasrallah seem to have diminished for the time being. In other words, in other words, the optimism that you portray, which you portray well, and your article is actually very good at keeping hope alive, which I'm, I'm glad you wrote that article. But what, what do you see uh, necessary, at least, to keep what you're describing, the, the momentum, alive? And I mean that in, in the political, uh, political landscape. What, what would you expect to happen in the near future so that you do see structural changes down the road? You know, I like the word momentum more than I like the word positivity because you really caught me at a bad day. And uh, <laughs> no, but 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 like I I I hate the image that you know like me and people around me are like happy go lucky and we think that we're gonna take over the system. Like that, you know, it's not about positivity. It's about mm -hmm. very calculated time spent and emotion spent and labor spent to render Diab's government and all of these politicians completely irrelevant to the fight that we're doing. This is not a fight, and I said this from day one, like the night of the protest on October 17th, Jazeera called me, they're like, do you want to bring down the Hariri government? I was like, it's not about that. Some of people are saying, it's not about this government, it's not about that government. It's about people that ruled our lives who have mm -hmm. been rendered completely irrelevant. And what I'm trying to say that there's so much happening in the informal politics in Lebanon that's going to take time. There will be multiple battles for these people, and I'm part of them, to organize themselves and to hit the system where it hurts. It's not about being positive. I mean, not, I'm, I'm super not positive. Like, if you see my face, like, I'm, I've been crying since 11 a.m. because I went to the bank today. I mean, people are falling apart. We're not, it's not about being positive. This is an impact that has hit the pillars of the system. I don't recognize the Diab government as legitimate, but I don't think it's not a big deal that Hariri mm -hmm. is no longer mm -hmm. prime minister, but Gibran, I mean, even in a nominal, superficial way, and what I'm saying is that there's so much happening in the shadows. I didn't mean to rub you off the wrong way. I know you know Lebanon and its struggles and its violence much more than me or anyone around me. I, I didn't mean to rub you off the, long, the wrong way. Of course, you understand that there's momentum, but it's not about being positive. It's that people every day behind closed doors are calculating and being very purposeful about their moves. It's normal that the numbers diminish. But, you know, two weeks ago when three, four people got arrested, the numbers weren't diminished. And people showed up and, and got beaten up and tear gassed and, you know, uh, so I think there's a lot of bravery and momentum there, but people realize it's not only the street, huh? We need to get to know each other and trust each other. It's like Ibn Akkar, Ibn Kfarrman, it's this time that we didn't have from the civil war that we're just catching up on. And I really feel the Lebanese are, have this moment of super heightened 
awareness and emotion and empathy. It's not about being positive. Fuck positivity. Like people have shitty days and we cry and we lose our money and we can't get our dollars out. It's not positive. It's just the reality that to challenge this octopus of a system is different than challenging a head of a regime. And we're calling for systematic change. It's going to take time. But I think we know where it hurts. And I think people are very calculated. It's my feeling. It's my analysis. Maybe I'm biased. Maybe it's a like it's strategy of survival. But but it's really how what I hear. You know, I, I I'll I'll just only add one point because I think you said it well. And it, patience is required despite all that's happening. That this is still fairly new. And I think maybe we we live in a time where we expect change to happen faster, and it's just uh, it doesn't happen overnight. So that's but the good. No, the novelty yeah. of it, sorry for your listeners, is mm. this is 1989 in Lebanon. Right, this isn't right. 2009, you know, this is not 2020. Yeah. This is like, oh, the Christian thinks like the Muslim and then, oh, oh, there's a middle class. And like it's it, we're 30 years backwards in terms of the political yes. you know, discourse. And we, people are just reading their constitution. I have students that are like, oh, I didn't know our constitution is so cool. I'm, I'm like, yeah. So, you know, our, our, our awareness, like the whole podcasting that you're doing, this is all new. Your recent article, which was just published a few days ago in, in Arabi, um, and you, you make it clear that the revolution is totally winning. These are your words, totally winning. But we're also, and I'll use the collective we here, anyone that wants change in Lebanon, this is a very diverse grouping of people, we're all up against a triangle. And you, you, you end the article by saying there's a, a triangle of weapons, banks, and religious courts. And I want to go backwards here, starting with religious courts. I, I like that you've written recent articles touching on women's issues and women's place in society, women's place in, in citizenry and politics. And you, you eloquently describe the structural problems facing women today and why this revolution is about women as well, as much as anything else. And if we touch on religious courts here, I'm, I'm guessing you're, you're implying many things, not just about women, but let's use the let's use divorce issues, let's use women's right to pass nationality, things that we kind of talk about all the time in Lebanon. Do you see that that is still in the mix in terms of the demands on the street, the old ways that we deal with each other, whether it's communal intermingling, or sectarianism, whatever you want to call it, the old way, the pre-October 17 way that we're used to, that that's really in the mix right now. I mean, let me lay it out. Context is everything, okay? We have a sectarian power-sharing system, which in and of itself is not a derogatory thing. Power-sharing that guarantees the representation of the major sects in the country, considering this, to say the least, has been a touchy issue from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. What is derogatory is that there's a bunch of men that led a civil war that agreed in Ta'if and agreed again in Doha and agreed again in every dialogue table that the only way that they can stay in power is controlling capitalism, controlling weapons, and getting people subjugated to their religious courts. This is why women stand to gain the most or lose the most from this um, struggle. Because their very bodies is governed by really a bunch of men. They got down from the tank. I don't think we have a system in Lebanon. We have a bunch of seven, eight people. You can philosophize and call them oligarchs, sectarian leaders, who continue to tell us the narrative after the civil war, and especially after March 14, you know this very well has been, look where divided, choose where you want to stand. 
when in reality they are not divided in the mechanisms and the strategies that they use to subjugate all citizens and particularly women. And this is why this issue is very securitized and very politicized. So the struggle is between two competing narratives, that of citizens and that of the enemies of this people. They're the enemies of the people. And they've been so uncovered so super well in the last three months, it's pure joy to see them falter and to see them starting to lay the blame on each other. I don't know if that makes mm, sense. Mm. So, your so you're seeing the regime in a, in a sense, not, not, necess- not necessarily implode, but you're seeing it fracturing to a degree. The, they are fractured. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. the, the, the performance of March 14 and the last naming of the prime minister and then showing up at the budget uh, hearing is precisely this. They have an interest to keep the system, but they also are trying to say, oh, look, we're not with them. Those are the pro-Syrian people. And people are like, hello, Habibi, why did you go to the budget hearing? You could have not given them a majority and there could not have been a consensus of this if you weren't there. They, Their only interest, they are not a project after the civil war. They could not articulate a project of development. They can't. They can't fix the taxis. They can't fix the street. They can't pick up the garbage. They can't bring the, if they do this, people won't need them. They will need a state. And this is the project today that is being faltered and cracked around. And their own constituency, and I never dreamed of a protest in Jaladib, Kfarramen, and Tripoli. It's those people that are saying, hello, enough. So you see that w- women, despite it all, in 2019, 2020, are able to affect change, perhaps in 2021, 2022. I believe that women have, in, 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 you know, in the shadows and in the protests and revolution, totally like claim their space. I mean, our mothers mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, your mother mm-hmm. and my, they've done this for hundreds of years. Like Lebanese women have a role to play in the public sphere. Sure. My worry, my worry is that when it comes to formal politics, and this is a real concern, and this is why I'm telling you, I'm not always like happy go lucky. My worry is that the people that sit down post-revolution won't include the voices of not just women, but like won't be inclusive of various class interests of various mm-hmm, disciplinary mm-hmm. perspectives. Like if, 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 the post-revolution is going to be a bunch of men like Ta'if saying, okay, guys, you take this, you take that, and you know what? We're going to give the Hirak like few seats. This is going to be destructive. And the fight is to transform what we're doing informally. What I mean informally is like right. and to put right. it into formal politics yani, to be able to have a political party that is inclusive. Anna, this has been my life work. Yani. I speak with women in all parties. I'm like, okay, but the bylaws call for elections. They're like, ahlan elections. You know, I can't even take an appointment with the boss, this sort of formal, and so informally, I mean, in the revolution, women are everywhere. How much that translates into us sitting on the table and developing a system that is not about women's rights, but that is inclusive of everyone, that would naturally include women. I think this is the fight. And this is our fight. It's not the politician's fight. So that's that's traditional politics in a sense. You see political parties yeah. take, taking that role m- more than... The conversation, like with women, friends, no one cares about the formal system anymore. Like, right. Inta, do you believe that there's a budget today in Lebanon? That there is a civil service, that there is... That, you know, that there is a government, that Hassan yeah. Diab is the boss? No, no, and the reason perhaps that we're not protesting... In big numbers, now we've got me thinking, is because we don't want to bring them down. They're irrelevant. We want to build. So you're also adding, in a sense, that there's a psychological component here, that that Lebanese, not just women, all Lebanese, have... In a way, they they've let go of their any any hope for this regime to reform itself. That this is a fundamental break, and now there's something else being built in its place. Did, did I get you right? 
ايه ذيرز سايكولوجيكال اند فيري ماتش اند ايكونوميك اند يعني ذير ايرليفنت يعني انت اليوم يو دونت كول ذا ستيت تو جيف يو جوب اور ذا ستيت تو جيف يو سوشيال سكيورتي اور ذا ستيت تو جيت يو انا اذا هلا صار معي مشكل اي دونت كول يعني اي كول بيبل هو كلوزنج ذا ستريت I don't call the say who who dares you to, we're talking about women who dares as a woman to go say I've been harassed or I've been raped at the same police station this system is irrelevant we're going to take time to build an alternate system it takes a lot of time this right. is a game much of awareness of leadership and patience and trust and you know it's very, it's very very hard to build these structures from scratch It would be impossible to imagine this the, these protests without the economic pain. I mean, I assume you agree that what we saw was an outburst of anger towards the economic problems. But from that, there have been other issues being addressed as well. In other words, the economic pain is really the, the unifying factor. The economics uh, hasn't only been about the dollar value. It's been really mm-hmm. a politics of insult. Look, in the Arab world, and you know this, and you Lebanese. People don't talk about money. You never go to a dinner. Now I go out with my friends and I ask about how much should I order chicken or meat. It's a politics of insult. When some man, a father, uh, hangs himself, shoots himself, this is a politics of insult. We're not used to talking about money. The clientelist network that grew after Ta'if was a cover for people. And you know, they would say, like, you know, I vote for him, but I'm I'm okay. You know, I live with dignity. Inheritance schools, you know, my wife doesn't need to like go, you know, sell clothes or whatever. Sure. The economic situation unified Lebanese people across classes and not the rich classes, but at least middle and lower income are unified around the politics of insult. Anna, my father worked 47 years. Sorry, we're better off than other people. It's a politics of insult. The second point in the triangle that you explained is that people are going up against the banks. What do you see happening? How it will evolve in the coming months or maybe even years? And will it react sufficiently to what protesters want? Or is that is that too hopeful right now that we can't really assume things will get better in the near future? Yeah, the problem is what I was telling you, that because they're in bed together, this triangle, you can't bet. I mean, perhaps one of this, these sectors, I mean, perhaps the weapons will, you know, wage a war against the courts and the courts will wage a war against the, the mm-hmm. banking. But the problem is that they're, they're so much in bed together. And the problem is that the project of an ash, of, of revival of one uh, burns the project of the other. Yani today, if courts come and say, okay, justice for all, regardless of religion, class, the banks say, oh, but we can't figure out this inheritance thing. And the politicians will say, lahza, lahza, people won't vote for us if we're not allied with the courts. So I'm not seeing mm-hmm. a way out. This is what I was trying to tell you. People aren't relying on them anymore. Yani that this triangle is going to produce anything. I don't know what alternative economy looks like, but I'll tell you there's been so much, so much socioeconomic solidarity. And every house, every house is giving whatever they can for the house nearby. I, I go to my right. parents on the weekend and, and my mom has like, you know, Kleenex, detergents, food, clothes, pasta. I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, oh, my friend dropped them off. They're taking them there. I go to visit my friends, so, you know, diapers and, 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 and you know, had milk. I said, what are you doing? So, oh, I heard that there's some, you know, I think the, the, the social side of it and the social solidarity still didn't let many people, although few have and have killed themselves and have suffered, 
has still created the sort of safety net. And this alternate cooperative solidarity is what is keeping the when you when you don't see people on the street, it's because they're doing food drives and clothes drives and figuring out a way out of this triangle. No, I don't think the banks will get us out of this. They can't because the politicians behind them, if the banks today do their jobs, people are gonna piss on the on the on the budget, public budget. The promise of the public budget is that they will get us out of that. It's in a way linked to the earlier argument, which is you can't trust what you have right now. People need to accommodate for something else, and they have to build something else. Whether it's an alternative cooperative solidarity struggle for the time being or something else, that basically someone like you or anyone that cannot put their money in their own account has to make do with another arrangement, at least for the time being. Yes. Not only that you can't trust, they're not relevant to the struggle. They're not because, relevant, yeah. So it's uh, even, what, okay. You know, what yeah. I was trying to say in the article, uh, nominally, we brought down a government and we brought a new government and and, and nominally on paper. Tell right. we won. It's interesting. You know, I, I think uh, in the dozens of conversations I've had on, on similar issues, it's the first time I've heard someone explain why the numbers are really low, or at least comparatively low. And you're saying it, it's actually, a, it's, a, it's a sign of progress, which I think is a, it's a unique way of looking at it, that people have literally moved on. There's nothing really to protest completely against. Completely moved on, and I can anchor yeah. this. And I, I know your your podcast isn't about uh, sort of research, but I can anchor this because social movements and protests enter into periods of abeyance, but they don't die. Abeyance means you retreat into the house and the the, the circle and the neighbors, and you re-strategize and you think about what people need. We're in sub-abeyance, not really abeyance, because today if if I go you know, get caught or people beat me up, all my friends will go down, all my students. My, and if we support system, we're in abeyance right. in the sense that we're going backwards. You know, the women movement and the US civil rights movement, it was not always on the street. It entered a yes. period of abeyance. Yeah. But abeyance right. is not dormancy. It's like we mm-hmm. go back, mm-hmm. we retreat, we think, and then we choose our battles. And I think this is where we are. It's a very messy, chaotic, this person likes that person, this person wants this, the other person wants that. But abeyance in the sense of mobilization doesn't mean death, black it means rebirth. Right. You know, it's important also to know that you are a specialist in, in social movements and, and protest movements. So you, that's your specialty, your research specialty. So people should turn to you for that for that information as well. Let's dive into the weapons issue. We didn't see uh, outright violence in the last three and a half, four months, which is quite impressive. We've had violence. We've had uh, injuries. And some of them are, I mean, horrible injuries. And they've been shared online. But the, the level of violence that one would perhaps expect in a time of unrest and revolt and, and demands, it's not there, which is, which is good. It's a good thing for, for Lebanon. That said, there is a weapons component to the story. And I think it would be unfair to, uh, to put the last 30 years as simply an economics debate, because clearly, clearly, it's not just economics. There's a political and there's a structural problem with the way Lebanon is governed. And there there are groups that have armed themselves throughout Lebanese history and at times taken Lebanon into dark and dangerous places. This uh, differentiation that some some are delivering, which is the revolution versus counter-revolution, and you can phrase it whatever you want, uh, revolution versus resistance. And I, I think there's been different ways of delineating the difference. Do, do you see that the weapons issue, and I'm not talking about Hezbollah, only. I'm talking about any group that can turn to the use of violence if necessary. Do you see that that sovereignty story 
is in the mix, that the protesters are able to to at least create the foundation to relieving Lebanon from that stress. The story of weapons and weapons ability to at least derail political reform in Lebanon. The most pregnant, I think, and powerful moment was after what happened, because in this counter-revolution, there was a moment where uh, people who were armed, namely Hezbollah and Amal, went on the ring and beat up protesters and they Mm. were carrying guns. The most poignant and powerful moment, I think, were when the mothers of Shia and Remene. This is why I'm telling you to understand Lebanon. We are in the wake of 1990. This is the first time that these women see that they have something in common, that they don't want their sons and daughters to fight. I think that this intensity and uh, the slogan that was born in the revolution, mm-hmm. al has mm-hmm. been so powerful. It has shaken people up. And people are really, no, there is no war in Lebanon and no violence in Lebanon. And vandalism isn't violence. Today, I wanted to burn six ATM machines. This is not violence. I would never hurt a cat on the street. There's no need for violence. People are sick of blood. Every house in Lebanon, your father, my uncle, her mother, the neighbor, the daughter, every house in Lebanon has entered into violence. And I think there's an extremely heightened emotion that this is a losing game. And this protects the revolution. This is a a revolution against those bunch of guys that promised us electricity and welfare and women's representation and whatever in terms of promises. And the only thing I would bet on, if we lose and we have this podcast five years from now, you know, and I'm sitting and I'm an old woman with five cats and I'm like, oh, I'm cynical. The only thing I would bet on is that we will not enter into violence. No way. No way. Every house has a policeman and a student and a union worker and a single mom. The the diversity of the struggle in an intersectional manner protects us from getting into violence. This has been the most repeated sentiment. It's been so if I, if I just if I got you right that the the weapons issue is not there because the Violence is not there. Did I get that right? Because in other words, no, in other no, words, sorry. Because no one has weapons except one side. And so people let, realize that entering in one side is not only Hezbollah, it's Haras al-Majlis. People can't fight the the bunch of police that are protecting an empty building, the freaking parliament. Who cares? Uh, no. What is protecting the revolution from entering violence and, and weapons and arms is this realization that you all, Michelle Aoun included, that held arms and violence and killed our kids. Also, the complexity of the family structure in Lebanon. You know, the police, sorry to interrupt, Carmen. I guess I, maybe I didn't, uh, I, I may have phrased it incorrectly. What I meant was, was, do you think that the revolution can yield political change so long as there are groups that can turn to violence when needed. I didn't mean that the revolutionaries are violent. I wasn't talking about the um, attacking the banks, which I think is a very different form of civil disobedience and violence. I didn't mean that. I meant uh, more in touching on the geopolitical problems Lebanon is stuck with and and, then the fact that there is a group that is armed and able to dictate certain security issues and foreign policy matters in Lebanon. They tried, Yannick. You know, they went so, down. so so you're saying that that side cannot use weapons because it's a because they are unable to also 
preserve the regime through weapons. Did I get, did I get that right? I'm saying that our unity from north mm -hmm. to south renders mm -hmm. their violence irrelevant. And I only represent myself. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I, okay. I mean, let them come down and kill all people and see what happens with geopolitics and with people's votes and people, you know, look, okay. every system in the world requires ob ob people obeying. You can ask people to obey because of clientelism, because of an ideological project, because of religious reasons, because of protection, because of benefits. Even the, the side that is on needs people to be on their side. Their people aren't going to accept that you and I are going to be shot on the street because we're asking for a <laughs> no technocrat, please solve the Karabakh crisis. Our nonviolence renders them irrelevant. They're, so that's interesting. So in other words, the fact that they are armed at this moment in time in Lebanese history is irrelevant to the protesters' demands. And, and it may also uh, be a useless weapon against civil uh, discourse at this time. And, and, uh, in, other words, in other words, their weapons are not part of the story because literally they're not part of the story. But otherwise, police would have won. You, know, you, you watch what happened or perhaps you were there. They would have arrested or shot us all. On live TV, what happens the next day with their constituency? Anna, I'm not scared of this. Would you, can I, but sorry, yeah, and actually, you know, no, I was there, and I, I wanted to ask you, but yeah. step further away from the state, from the internal security, or even the army, do you think that a group like Hezbollah has the, uh, is able to survive the way it operates with the current demands of the revolutionary people? In other words, is that an ultimate stumbling block down the road, or do you see that as simply it's irrelevant for the time being? If they are able to upgrade themselves and yeah, to join the modern world and stampede on our demands, this is their internal project. For for me, again, I'm not part of any. For me, right now, this issue is not a divisive issue. Man is that people didn't go and say, people went and said, this political class, everybody, we don't want to see their faces, we don't want to hear their names. Bring right. us people outside of the systems. But so far, I see them in a very uh, very uh, typical and classical non-violence versus violence. Now, no violence isn't only weapons, it's also economic, it's also gendered, it's also, you know, judicial. I see them in a classic, like... Um, Dilemma situation. I mean, they're gonna kill us all. They're gonna no, say we're I, all. I, 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 I mean, only, what are they gonna do? No, no. I, and I, I know that it's from your subjective view. I only wanted to bring it up because it was. It's one of the three points that you, uh, that you expressed in, yeah, in, no, in the I, article. I so stuck, yeah. yeah. I think they're stuck in. Okay, that's a, that's an interesting take. I haven't heard that before either. So the, in a way, they're they're trapped within their own confines because the revolution is is beyond their their. It's beyond their goals. And because their constituency isn't far from us, because right, right. the revolution yeah, didn't yeah. come and say, we're going to replace all of y'all. The revolution came and said, there's another set of divans that this system and the way that you've been governing can't fulfill it. I've spoken to several academics who primarily focus on research and and they're able to really get to the core of many issues. I always get the sense that whether it's a academic institution or even a research center, it could be a think tank, there are severe limits within the Lebanese landscape on what academics are able to offer and what the power structure is willing to take in. And just from your own experience, now that you've been a professor at AUB for some time, the, the work that you do or even the work that the university does, 
that we can include even Isam Ferris as a think tank within the university. Do, do you sense that there's an opening now for a for a future regime? It doesn't have to be this one. It could be another cabinet, another prime minister uh, that is more more willing to listen to what experts have to say. Do, do you think that there's a, a window of opportunity here for experts to really lead? And in a sense, a real, a truly technocratic moment in Lebanese history? Uh, okay, now I'm going to go very um, theory and what I've been thinking about in the last two years. Um, you know, the model of the university and of expertise, I think that uh, it's up to us Lebanese to define what we want to do. I spent some time in South Africa this summer and learned a lot from what the university and quote-unquote experts did in terms in times of apartheid. And I think that for many academics, including myself, entering this sphere, this is why I said in the beginning, wannabe scholar was a way to continue activism in a different way, whether it's through teaching, through pedagogy, you know, through trying to produce knowledge that speaks to multiple publics, is to think about knowledge and its public presence beyond publications and beyond the metrics that Global North scholars, you know, lay out for us. So when I spend time, you know, in New York and Boston, etc., universities in the Global North think about engaging with the community as sort of an extra role that they have to do, right? Feeding the poor, dealing with Black Lives Matter, etc. I think for many of us at the academy here, it's the opposite. We think of moving activism into this community and into what it means to be an academic and to produce knowledge. And for a lot of us, like we play the role of insider-outsider. And for many of us, we write about topics that we care about. In this sense, yes, there is sort of an expertise that can be transferred. But right now, the, the word of technocrat and expertise and professor has become uh, um, not cynical, like Sar Maskhara. And you don't want to say you're the professor, you're the expert. But you would want to say, no, you know what? I was so inspired by Lebanon, I took it to the private sector and I tried to make a difference. I have friends in tourism doing this and I have friends in, you know, media studies kind of like doing this. There is there is a very thin line because Beirut is so small of this exchange of expertise. Yes, there is a time for the university to play the role, but not in the way that the West pictures it and measures it. Uh, and I'll tell you, the, the, the bigger weight is the activism. You know, what I struggle with is to make sense of the academic life, not because I have a PhD, how do I become an activist? It's the opposite. It's transferring that type of empirical experience and, and experience, basically. It's not expertise, it's experience, and putting it into academic terms. And and I think this, they're very blurry lines in multiple professions. I mean, the artists, you know, shut down the banks and they showed up and sang songs and played the saxophone. And if you watched, like, I mean, the, the, the artists huh, who, who, who perform in Metro and, and these places, I think the lines of our profession and our activism in places like Lebanon, like in apartheid South Africa, don't make sense without the broader political struggle. And in this sense, yes, I do think as, as academics we have a role to play because we are activists, not because yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, yeah. the, uh, some I mean, there have been many special moments, and uh, one of them for me was uh, going to the egg the first few weeks of the of the revolt, and seeing professors there teaching their history courses in the egg. And to me, that's just a, it's a symbolic way of, of explaining that, uh, you know, the, the university does play a role beyond the university gates. 
Uh, yeah, I think I mean, it was. I think there yeah. were a lot of problems with the content and the formatting of the egg. But but for example, as as colleagues at AUB, the, the first day we said we're not going to go back to class because right. the class is the streets and the street has become the classroom. And we yeah, can I learn don't I don't think it. you can get a projector set up there, or, or the internet will will not work well. But it's uh, no, but, but, but there was but the, some like the, <laughs> sure, the whole but, idea of yeah, foreigners of speak. I mean, there was an, a lot of you know there was a lot of backlash. I mean, I, I admire a lot of people that set that up. But this whole idea, Yane. You know, I worry about like Western audiences. Like, oh, like she's so engaged. It's the opposite. She's so engaged. She tried to be an academic. We regard our expertise, of course, if we can help. You know, I've been working on the refugee issue, for for the last five years. Of course, I would support a ministry or or UNHCR if they asked. But not because I'm expert in learning. I'm an activist. I'm an expert. Say a bit. You know, that was the job. I get a lot of hope and optimism from your side, which is good. And I think. Uh, Many people have seen uh, Lebanon go through many different stages in recent history, but it's clear that this one is really a, it doesn't only stand out, but it's it's so profound and it's so emotional too, and it's taxing at times. I think people, um, I think people are lucky if they can take a break from it a bit and reflect, and I'm happy that you did that today. You sort of helped sort of navigate the last three and a half, four months from, from a unique perspective. So thank you for your time, Carmen. Thank you, Ronnie, for telling the story and for your commitment.